I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it again. Maybe by now it falls open to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, uh, verses 21 through 34. Mark 4, 21 to 34. If you're using one of the uh, black Bibles under a chair in front of you, you'll find Mark chapter 4 on page, or Mark chapter 4, verse 21, on page 788. Uh, in our Bibles, the, the large numbers there on the pages are the chapters, the smaller superscripted numbers are the verses. Mark's Gospel 4, chapter 4, verses 21 to 34, a sermon this morning that I have titled, The Unforced, Astonishing Kingdom of God. Uh, last fall, I was making a trip through Costco, as is my bi-weekly habit, semi-weekly habit, like twice a week I'm at Costco. It's a problem. I've admitted it. Get over it. And as I was wandering through Costco, you get up, fall upon their, their seasonal section, uh, and, and it's always in a different place. But this year, uh, there in their sort of seasonal section, they had all of these uh, plant uh, flower bulbs that you're supposed to plant in the fall so that they would spring up in the spring. And uh, we had just uh, late last summer kind of cleared out a, sort of a flower bed in our backyard and I had put in some drip irrigation uh, with all of the hopes of maybe growing some flowers there. Uh, I usually hope at those things somewhat hopelessly because I don't have a green thumb, I have a black thumb. Everything I plant, I just, I kill. We talked about my grass woes last week. So I bought some tulip bulbs at Costco thinking these probably won't work. We'll see what happens. So I spent some time digging up the ground in the flower bed, planting the bulbs, uh, fighting my dog to keep him from digging them up every other day when he'd go outside by himself. And miracle upon miracles, a couple of months later, even in the winter, some little green things started growing up out of the ground. I was shocked. I thought, they're growing. That's good. I'm assuming they're the, you know, what I've actually planted and not weeds. We'll see if this lasts. And sure enough, come springtime, they grew up further and they bloomed and blossomed. And we had this flower bed that was just full of tulips and some other kind of flower that I bought to just fill in extra space. I don't remember what they were called. They're not as pretty as the tulips anyway. All the tulips have bloomed and blossomed and are dead and hopefully they'll come back uh, again next year. That's just what they do. But I was just shocked, shocked that something like that would happen. I know that seems silly. Some, many of you are successful gardeners. Not me. Black thumb, Remember? All this time, like all through the fall and the winter season, they, these bulbs in the ground, in dirt, that by the way, I didn't even put any soil, like garden soil. It was just the dirt that was there, grew up and produced these beautiful flowers. I followed the instructions that were on the tulip bulb bag. I did virtually nothing to them, and they blossomed. Amazing. I sometimes feel the same sort of astonishment, and maybe sometimes awkward silliness, I suppose, about the task of preaching. You, you might feel the same way about sharing the gospel with other people. I'm just saying a few words. I'm opening a book that I didn't write, words that I didn't pen, reading them, explaining them. I'm sharing a gospel that I didn't make up. It's there in scripture with my friend at the coffee shop or at work. And I'm just talking about who Jesus is and what he promises. And, and somehow, whether we're preaching here or proclaiming the gospel in our workplaces or at schools, we expect these little words to do amazing things. Just saying a few words that aren't even my own, rather unconvincingly and with hardly any authority to command a response, and, and yet we expect those words, faithfully delivered, to have a response, to result in something, to spring up into life, to bear fruit. 
Paul himself, the apostle, confessed the strange paradox of the effectiveness of the simple word of the gospel, saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose to use what no human being would have ever chosen to use as the means of effecting his redemptive work, his saving work, just so that God would, just so that we would be so confounded and God would be so glorified. So that if anyone would boast, he would only be able to boast in the Lord who does the seemingly impossible through the faithful words of improbable people. The gospel of the kingdom is a small thing that works oftentimes in invisible and unforeseeable ways to bear great fruit, often to our own shame, because it, the fruit that it, it displays, the fruit that it produces is, is so impossibly larger than the faith that we had as we planted it. In Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 34, Jesus continues in a series of a few more parables. We saw the uh, first parable of the sower of the soils uh, last week, and Jesus continues with a few more parables, not about the purpose of parables so much like last week was, but this week, uh, parables about the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God comes upon us, how it grows, what it does, what it turns into, and how it does all of that, sometimes imperceptibly, sometimes invisibly, sometimes unexpectedly, and often astonishingly. Through a series of parables, Jesus teaches that the revelation of God's kingdom comes not in the power of man in in expected ways, but rather by the power of God in unexpected and astonishing ways. The main idea of this passage for us this morning is this, that God reveals and grows his kingdom by his power and in his wisdom. If you're taking notes, write that down. God reveals and grows his kingdom by his power and in his wisdom. I hope that as we see this truth uh, revealed to us in God's word, that we would come to understand and have great confidence in the power of God's word, and that also we would regularly, just one more time, tune our ears to hear the truth of the gospel one more time as we encounter it this morning, and again, as often as we'll encounter it throughout the week ahead of us. God reveals and grows his kingdom by his power and in his wisdom. I'd ask that you would Stand now as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading his word, Mark 4, 21 to 34. Continuing in his biography of the life of Jesus, the uh, gospel writer Mark says, he, he said to them, Jesus said to them, his disciples and those who were with them, is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is God's word. May we be blessed in reading and studying it. You may be seated. God reveals and grows his kingdom by his power and in his wisdom. That is what Jesus is teaching in the course of these parables. Jesus tells kind of four, really sort of three parables, and from them we learn three different things all pertaining to the way that God reveals and grows his kingdom. The first parable is a parable of of, of a lamp in, in a room. And from this parable and from the closing verses of our passage today, verses 33 and 34, we learn that the light of God's word calls for eager attention. The light of God's word calls for eager attention. Now, the context of the parables that we consider this morning is the same context as those that we looked at last week. In Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, we saw Jesus tell and then explain the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils to describe how some people would and other people would not hear the message of the parables. Uh, The parables, you recall, are these short fictional stories whose characters and events are meant to illustrate spiritual realities, kingdom realities. The parables, for those who are inclined to understand them, will reveal the truths of God's kingdom, Jesus taught us last week. But for those who are not inclined to listen to them, for those who do not have eyes to see and those who do not have ears to hear, the parables will not put down root in their lives and bear fruit of the kingdom. So when we come to verses 21 to 25 of this chapter of Mark, we find that that same context of that first parable... uh, about the purpose of parables, is is here also guiding our understanding of these parables, specifically this one about a lamp. The lamps in Jesus' day were usually small, handheld clay vessels filled with oil with a wick of uh, a cloth or or perhaps some plant material kind of rolled and twisted up and, and stuck in its spout that you would light. And these lamps did not put off nearly the same light as a light bulb. And so to light a room, the lamp would be put up on a high place in a room uh, where it was most likely to shine on everything, on a table or on a lampstand. A person who lit a lamp and put it under a basket or under a bed would be foolishly using that lamp. I think we all get the image there. In this parable, the lamp represents the gospel of the kingdom that is communicated in the parables. The parables are meant to shine light on spiritual realities so that those who are listening to them, using them rightly, perceiving them rightly, will see clearly what Jesus is explaining by them. And so Jesus reminds the disciples who are listening to him to listen hard, to internalize what he is saying about the importance of listening to the parables. The parables are light of the gospel, so hold them high and let them shine on the home of your heart. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, I hope you caught these words again. He says them often. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And then right after that, pay attention to what you hear, he says to his disciples. Because the one who is listening to understand the parables will be given understanding of the kingdom. But the one who's not listening, the one who's turned a deaf ear to the message of the gospel, will lose even what understanding he thinks he has. And Jesus, in saying... The one who has more will be given to the one who does not have even what he has will be taken away. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus isn't making an economic statement. He's not talking about your bank account. But he's rather he's making a statement about the economy of listening to God's word, the return on investment of listening for the purpose of the parables. I like how the New Living Translation translates these verses. 
If you read the New Living Translation for your own study, you'll, you'll see it this way. Mark 4, 24 and 25 in the NLT says, Then Jesus added, Pay close attention to what you hear. The closer you listen, the more understanding you'll be given, and you'll receive even more. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. So we see Jesus is saying again that the word of God requires eager attention if we are to have any understanding of it. We've got to perk up. We've got to listen up. We've got to, to pray to have eyes of faith and ears of faith to see and to hear, to perceive God's word rightly. And we find at the end of our passage that Jesus says that he, or that Mark says that Jesus spoke in parables as his disciples had the ability to hear. You see that in verse 33. And then further explained the meaning of the parables to them in private, enlightening them to its purpose. There's something to the nature of parables that remains hidden. Even when the light of the world, Jesus himself was telling them to his disciples. Even Jesus has to take his disciples aside and say, this is what I meant by all the parables. You understand now? And what the disciples lacked in that moment of Jesus teaching them specifically or personally in that day they, and, and what they later came to have, and that we as followers of Jesus have today, is the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, who himself enlightens our hearts to the word of God as we encounter it. The reason Jesus had to explain the parables privately to his disciples is because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God enlightening them to, its, to, to how to understand it correctly. Jesus says in John chapter 14, uh, these things, John 14 uh, 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you that wh uh, while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus says the parables are like, uh, like a lamp that you hold up, put up high in a house to shine light on everything. So he says by that to the disciples, when I'm speaking, listen up, L let these parables light up the, the home of your heart so it, that it will reveal all that is uh, spiritually true and false in you, and you can either obey or correct what you're doing in, in perhaps sinful disobedience. What the disciples didn't have, we do have today. By faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God to enlighten us to this, but nevertheless, we do still need to be submissive to the Holy Spirit, that we might hear what he is saying and, and understand what he is pointing out to us in God's word. The light of the gospel calls for eager attention. So how can you practice eager attention to the light of the gospel, to God's word as you read it, not just on Sunday morning in worship and in Bible study, but throughout the week? What are some things that you can do to help you listen well to God's word so that you don't miss what's being said? I have six, I hope, practical tips for you as you consider understanding God's word rightly as you study it regularly. First of all, read God's word prayerfully. Read God's word prayerfully. This is the first step to giving eager attention to God's word. Bible reading, friends, is a spiritual work. This word, inspired by the very Holy Spirit of God, is not a human text. It is a divine text that has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit through faithful human authors who were carried along in the inspiration of God's Spirit to write down God's word for us. This is not a merely human or natural task. This is a spiritual work. This is a supernatural task. We are engaging a supernatural text and we need the kind of, we need the discipline of prayer to sharpen our attention as we read. 
So when you come to God's Word, whether it's in worship on a Sunday morning or whether it's in a few quiet moments on your own throughout the day, approach it, read it prayerfully. You can say a simple prayer before you read. Something like, God, this is your Word, not mine. You have inspired it, and you intend it to shine light on my heart to show me where I am being obedient to you, to show me where I'm being disobedient to you, to to encourage me to walk in obedience and, and to strengthen me as I as I repent of sin. So God, as I read your word, Holy Spirit, as I read what you have inspired, open my heart to receive it. A simple prayer like that will help you to begin to listen well to God's word. Read it prayerfully. Second, read God's word expectantly. How often do we come to God's word and we read it and close it and walk away and never think about it again? Thinking that, uh, I mean, it's, it's an old text. I know I'm supposed to read it. It's God's word, so I will. But after I've read it, I'm just, I'll just... Check that box, close it, and move on with the rest of my day. I don't know if it has anything for me or not, so I'm just going to assume that it doesn't. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearer of the heart. Excuse me. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God is living and active. If it is living and active, we ought to expect that it will do something in us. The author of Hebrews says the the, 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 the scriptures, the word of God are like a sword that cuts us all up. And not, not indiscriminately, like, you know, Braveheart with his broadsword, just hacking at everything. But the, but the Word of God is, is, is a scalpel in the hands of a supernatural surgeon, cutting away and revealing the, those dead and cancerous sins of our hearts that, that, that we might walk in obedience and repentance. The Word of God is active. It will show us where we are not living in, in accordance with God's will. It will convict us of the truth of the gospel if we'll allow it. The Word of God is living and active. We should read it expectantly, expecting that it will do something. Third, read slowly. Read prayerfully, read expectantly, read slowly. And by that, I don't just mean slow down, although I I do mean that too. Some of us are very fast readers and we'll we'll read our, our paragraph, we'll read our chapter in like 30 seconds. We'll close it up and move on with our day, not allowing it to to steep Uh, over us, not allowing ourselves to sit in it for a minute. Read slowly. And by that, I I, I mean read more. So don't just read one verse, close your Bible and move on, or one verse of one book and then three pages of a a devotional and then move on. Read more of God's Word. Slow down. Don't just read a verse, read a paragraph. Don't just read a paragraph, read a chapter. Don't just read one chapter, maybe read two or three. And maybe read it more often. Return to that passage throughout the day. Return to that paragraph uh, multiple times as the day goes by. Or maybe spend a whole week in just one chapter or one book of God's Word. Read slowly. Incorporate repetition of God's Word and meditation upon God's Word as you intend to listen well to it. Read prayerfully. Read expectantly. Read slowly. All these things help to shine the light of God's Word on our hearts as we encounter it. But fourth, read biblically. And by that, I don't just mean read your Bible. When we read biblically, we take time to consider 
what we are, how what we are reading pertains to the context of what we're reading in the book that we find it in. We don't just read Mark 4, 21 to 34 as though it exists without connection to any other text, close our Bibles and move on. And we think about how it relates to what came before and what came after. And we think about why did Mark include these uh, verses in this part of his biography of Jesus, just because it happened at that point in life in his time? Why did he include these things and not other things? We, we read biblically, we read the context of the whole book, and we want to read that book, the Gospel of Mark, in context with all of Scripture. As you do that, as you slow down to read biblically, you will find a, a, a wonderful connection between every single book of the Bible to so many others. In reading biblically, with a, with a view to biblical context, we, we find that this book, written over 1,500 years by over 30 individual human authors, has more intertextual allusions and citations and connections and repetitions than any other book in human existence. There is something to the very profound wholeness of God's Word in message, in theme, in, in proclamation that, that I think gives some evidence to its, to its divine origin. What other book, what other book compiled over a millennia and a half could have such intense unity among all of it? Only a biblical, only, only a divine book. Read biblically. So read prayerfully, read expectantly, read slowly, read biblically. Fifth, read historically. When we read historically, we do little things like considering the author's intention here. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of the text, but we have human authors that are inspired by the Spirit to write these things. John Mark, the missionary companion of Peter and also of Paul, is the human author, the, the human hand who put pen to paper to write down this gospel. He had an intention in what he was writing. It's not like the Holy Spirit just took completely over his mind and he just went, you know, riding in a daze and then all of a sudden his, his eyes rolled back from outside of the inside of his head and he's, oh my goodness, where did this come from? Mark, the person, is intimately, personally involved in the writing of his gospel. So it was Matthew, Luke, John, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses in the first five books of the Bible, Paul in all of his letters. The individual is involved but carried along and superintended by the Holy Spirit. So we need to think about why is Mark putting this here? What does Mark want us to know? What is he calling our attention to about Jesus? This isn't random. This is on purpose. Amen. When we read historically, we, we think about trying to find the message of the human author to us, which we saw in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is right there in front of us from the beginning, if we'll bother to read it. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you want to know what Mark is trying to tell you in his gospel, there it is. But you won't find it if you don't read historically, if you don't try to understand what Mark is saying. But also we need to think not just about what the, individual, the, the original author was saying, but also what, how the first audience of this text would have understood in reading it. The truth of the matter is that the Bible can't mean anything to us today that it could not have meant to its author or to its first audience. Mark is not writing some sort of cryptic biography of Jesus that only the church 2,000 years down the road would be able to understand. He's writing for people in the first century that they might know and have confidence about who Jesus the Christ, the Son of God is and what he did. We need to allow that meaning to control, to shape 
our understanding of Scripture. We can only do that if we read historically, thinking about the context of a book's writing. We read prayerfully, we read expectantly, we read slowly, we read biblically, we read historically, and finally, we read faithfully. We read faithfully. We need to read understanding that we are not the first people to read this book. We're not the first people to think about this book, to pray about it, to express our thoughts about this book. And so I encourage you, as you can, read what Christians through the centuries have said about what you're reading. We're not coming to this book fresh. Lots of people have poured over it, smarter than you or I or all of us combined, have poured over it and, and given their, their prayerful and, and well-intended and, and humbly submitted to God thoughts about this word and explanation of it. We need to read what Christians throughout the centuries have said about what we are reading. In doing so, we will be given the blessing of avoiding so many heresies and bad understandings of God's word and misapplications of his word, finding that as we read faithfully with the saints in history past, we'll find that they fought theological errors and controversies long before we were ever even born and settled hard on evidence from God's word about what the right faith and right thinking about God and the gospel is. Let's read in community with the saints who have gone before us, but let's also read faithfully by reading in community with Christians around us today. Not a one of us is ever saved by Christ to live on an island by ourselves in our faith, never exposed to anybody else. Part of reading faithfully means reading with the community of Christ in years past and among whom we find ourselves today. Six tips to help you to allow the light of the gospel to shine on the home of your heart as you read. Now, a lot of those are applicable mostly to Christians, but if you're not a believer yet, not a follower of Jesus yet, you can, you can practice all of these things as well, and that will help you to listen well to God's word. But my encouragement to you today, if you're not yet following Jesus, is this, that you would seek the Lord while he may be found in his word. And do not continue to refuse the light of the gospel. Every time you hear the gospel, that glorious message of Christ's death for sins, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, you are hearing an invitation to believe that message. The light of the gospel is shining and beckoning you to hold it high in your heart so that you might see that God is speaking to you by it. Until Christ was crucified and resurrected, the kingdom that he came bringing was veiled and shrouded. The disciples didn't fully understand it. It was hidden among the common things of life, veiled even by these very common parables. But when Christ was raised, that veil was lifted from his glory, and his divine reign was seen by all who would believe on him. And his divine reign, his kingship, and the kingdom that he comes bringing, and the kingdom that he preached about in his earthly ministry is seen today by all who believe on him. Hear me, friend, the kingdom is not hidden from us today. It is living and active and visible in the community of the faithful church. It is observable in the lives of people who have been changed by the power of the gospel and the God of the universe who makes his home in us through his own Holy Spirit. If you're not yet a believer, I invite you to see the fruit of the gospel in the lives around you in this room today as evidence of the power of Christ to shine the light of truth and salvation into your heart. But seek the Lord while he may be found and don't shut out the light of his kingdom forever. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, prophet who lived 700 years before Jesus was born said this, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The light of the gospel calls for eager attention. Are you listening? Jesus teaches us by the second of his parables in verses 26 to 29 that God will grow his kingdom in his power. God will grow his kingdom in his power. It's after the parable of the lamp that Jesus turns to give us two more seed parables. We had one in verses 1 to 20. We're going to get two more seed parables that are about the kingdom of God. This first of the two parables is about a man who sows a seed in the ground. He sleeps and he rises day by day. He sees the seed sprout like I watched my tulips and has no idea how all the intricate biological and botanical processes are working in that seed under the ground to cause it to grow. In all that ignorance, he watches it grow up, and then when it's time, he brings in the harvest when the grain is ready. In this little uh, parable, two phrases are key for us to understand the point of this parable, and these two phrases are right there together at the end of verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. This man sows seed in the ground, and he sees it spring up. He knows not how. Verse 28, the beginning of it, the earth produces by itself. Just as the farmer has no knowledge of why the seed sprouts, just that it does, so also the kingdom of God grows without the consent or the expertise of human beings. God is not waiting for you to give your approval to his kingdom agenda for him to grow his kingdom. And he's not waiting for you to give him all of your great wisdom on the best ways to do it for him to determine how it will come. And so just as the earth produces of its own accord, as Jesus says, the Greek word there is automate, automatically. The earth produces all on its own. So also the kingdom of God grows without human power. It produces itself. It grows up without our consent or our expertise. It grows up in God's power. The parable of the seed growing is meant to illustrate that no one knows where the kingdom comes from, no one knows how the kingdom of God grows, and no one knows what causes it to grow. The farmer in the parable is not ignorant of how seeds work. He's not stupid. But rather, he's not privy to the deep mysteries of plant life. Nevertheless, he does what he knows with the seed, with the word of the gospel. He plants it. He waters it. And then what does he do? He goes to bed. He rests and he readies himself for a harvest. So also those of us who follow Jesus, though we may not know where or how the kingdom will come to be or or among whom the kingdom will bear fruit, so we should also be faithful to do with the word what God intends. Sow it. And then we should rest. We should rest in the power of God and the work of God to do what men cannot contrive as he grows his kingdom. And when the seed of the kingdom is born, all of its divinely intended fruit in the salvation and the discipleship of people from every nation, Christ will return to gather in the harvest of his people to usher them into glory in this world made new. Now understand, this is not a parable that says, Christian, you can be lazy. Like just say stuff about the gospel and and never do anything about it. But what it is saying is, what what the parable is saying is that as we faithfully sow the word of the gospel, so we need to trust that God will bring whatever fruit he intends from it. And we need to be ready to encourage it to grow, to help it uh, along in as much as we're able to disciple those who make confessions of faith in Jesus. There's a primary application to us from this parable. 
that tells us that the kingdom grows by the power of God, and it is this, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should take confidence. That though we may, not, that we may be discouraged by what we see as a lack of fruit or spiritual growth or change in a particular situation, we should take confidence knowing that God is working His will and His might, in His will and His might, to cause His plans to unfold in His timing. God is sovereign. He's in control of His kingdom. Take confidence, Christian. God is at work through your faithful gospel sharing, even though it may seem fruitless. He's working his purposes in the hearts of the preschoolers that you're teaching Bible stories to on Wednesday nights. God is putting into place for us connections with missionaries and other pastors in parts of the world that we haven't even met yet as we pray weekly about these things. The Lord may be softening the heart of your skeptical friend or family member with every kind word of Christian hope and love that you share with them. He is watering the aspiration of young men that you labor in discipling to call them to serve as pastors one day. Yes, Christian, we may not see the fruit of the gospel in its fullness in our lifetime, but that does not mean it isn't happening. And yet, even as we're called to take confidence in the word of God and, and his ability to bring about the fruit of the kingdom, we're also called to exercise personal humility by this parable. Even as the farmer had little to do with the plant growing, so also do we have little to do with creating gospel growth, manufacturing church growth in another person's life or in the church's life. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, addressing a significant problem of division among the church. Some in the church had begun to see themselves as the spiritual fruit of specific gospel missionaries. I'm of Apollos. I come from Cephas, from Peter. Oh, I'm from Paul. He's my spiritual head. Paul writes to this church in conflict over ridiculous sort of spiritual genealogies like these, saying in 1 Corinthians 3, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We plant, we water, we pray, we fertilize in discipleship, and then we rest, knowing that God is the one who does the work of heart change. God is the one who reveals a person's sin to them in need of saving. God is the one who calls people to faith, effectively calls people to faith in Jesus Christ. We're just message bearers. And all the while, we remain ready farmers, planting the gospel indiscriminately, and then preparing to point people to life in Christ as they see their need for him as God intends. This parable teaches that God will grow his kingdom in his power. The final parable, verses 30 through 32, reveals to us that God grows his kingdom, not just in his power, but also from very small beginnings. God grows his kingdom from very small beginnings. The final parable of this section is probably very familiar to us. It also appears in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 13. The parable of the mustard seed helps us to understand that God's kingdom, even as it comes by God's power and not by human power, also begins in impossibly small ways to grow spectacularly large. Jesus uses in this parable a, a, an image, a picture of proverbial smallness, the mustard seed. Some of you may have some of these in a little tin in your spice cabinet. They are really little. 
Even as the mustard seed in Jesus' day was not the smallest known seed in the world, it was the smallest seed that anyone would intentionally plant in a garden expecting it to grow into something that they could harvest for benefit. So it's a common and accessible image of extreme smallness. And this small seed, when planted, grows into a sizable shrub, sometimes up to 10 feet tall, depending on the species of mustard. And in this case of the parable, Jesus says that that mustard seed that's like the kingdom, or the kingdom, like the mustard seed, grows so tall, so mighty, that even the birds make their home in it. This parable is not a scientific treatise on seed size. (laughs) And if you're reading that way, you'll miss the point. Jesus isn't giving a science lesson. He's telling a parable about the kingdom. In a a hyperbolic way, in an exaggerated way, Jesus is giving attention to those who are listening to the smallness of a mustard seed in comparison to the largeness, the size of the bush that it grows into. The kingdom of God, like a mustard plant, starts with humble, even meager, small, impossible beginnings. And in God's providence... From that seed grows a mighty bush in the presence of the garden, outpacing every other garden plant, regardless of the size of its seed when it was sown. When the kingdom is in full effect, it becomes then a shade and a refuge for everyone who seeks those things in Christ. For everyone who's looking for a home in Christ, they find refuge in God's kingdom. For everyone who's looking for rest, for the weariness of their soul, they find shade in the branches of God's kingdom. The kingdom is like a mustard seed in the smallness of its beginning. But it's unlike the mustard shrub in its growth because it far exceeds even the capability and size of the mustard plant. Though the way that Jesus is talking about this this mature mustard plant, he's even exaggerating what what it ultimately grows into so as to say the kingdom is even bigger than the biggest mustard plant. It is utterly astonishing in what it becomes given what it started from. The kingdom of God starts in the smallness of a child born to a virgin mother in a backwater town of ancient Palestine, a child who would grow into a man without a permanent home, surrounded by fishermen and tax collectors of all people, who himself taught and preached and healed, and then who died for crimes he never committed but was raised from the dead. Those who witnessed his life and death and resurrection were at first about 120, and then as we read in the course of the book of Acts, 3,000. And then not long after that, more than 10,000. To now, today, in 2023, nearly 2.5 billion people and counting. Not including all of those who have lived and died in faith in Christ in between. The kingdom of Christ grows from small, even insignificant beginnings to become a home for the spiritually lost. A home that never runs out of room for those who are being saved. The kingdom of God grows from very small beginnings. So, dear friend, do not despise the smallness of gospel beginnings, but treasure them, knowing that God delights in confounding human so-called wisdom with His power and might. Do not despise the smallness of gospel beginnings. We do in our own day and time probably give too much attention to the size and influence of things. We give too much attention to how many followers we have on social media as though the number of followers says something about how significant or how great we are. We give too much attention probably to the size of companies that we maybe invest in. Oh, this company's really, really big. I'll invest in it. It must be doing something good. 
But the gospel, the kingdom of God, does not begin with big things. It begins with very, very small things because God loves overturning the expectations of human wisdom so that he alone gets glory. We treasure the small beginnings of the gospel. We treasure making time on Thursday afternoons to go to Marie Hughes for a Crossroads Kids Club to share the gospel and the love of Jesus with 16 to 20 elementary schoolers because the gospel grows from small beginnings. It's only 16, 20 kids. Why bother? Because the gospel grows from small beginnings. It's worth the energy. We treasure the energy that we give in teaching new believers how to understand the Bible and how to pray well and how to worship with the church one at a time, maybe two at a time, because the gospel grows from small beginnings. Why not just start a mega church? Just get like, what you got to do is not, you don't need 150 people in the room. What you need are 1,500 people in the room. Now you've got some momentum, right? Not necessarily. The gospel starts from small beginnings. We treasure spending money and setting aside time in our schedule to fly to Germany like we will at the end of September, some of us, to learn from missionaries and to share the gospel with Germans who have all that they need already except Christ because the gospel grows from small beginnings. We treasure the sacrifice to support the work of the gospel through a little church like ours out of the abundance of God's provision to us by giving a small amount, a tithe maybe, 10% of what God has given to us through the paycheck that we get, through the work that we do, because we believe, as Jesus has said, that the gospel grows out of small beginnings. We treasure the smallness of gospel beginnings because it's in the smallness of gospel beginnings and the ultimate largeness, the ultimate size of the fruit of the kingdom that, that, that alone gives glory to God who deserves it. So here's this truth that's before us this morning. Not that we pray and serve and give and go so that God will make us into somebody someday. That people will come to admire for all of our achievements. We don't treasure small beginnings because we expect that God will make us big and bad and awesome one day. Nor do we even do all of these things, pray and serve and give and go, because God promises to make us wealthy in return. He doesn't. But we invest the gospel in small faithful ways, little by little, one person at a time, knowing that God has all power to take that small seed of the message of Christ and grow it far beyond our comprehension. And we know that he can because we are living in the fruit of that today. God's kingdom is growing on earth today. Jesus has said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not overcome it. And he is making good on his promise. He is doing precisely that in seen and unseen corners of the world today. Now listen, most of us in this room, probably all of us or maybe none of us, will be the next Billy Graham. Probably none of us will be the next Lottie Moon or Adoniram or Ann Judson or Greg Laurie or Charles Spurgeon. But even these great figures of Christian history had nothing to do with the fruit of God's work in and through their ministry. They're just faithful servants planting little seeds and entrusting the good and powerful God to produce astonishing results. So you, little old Chris, you, little old Sandy, you, little old Ellie, you, little old Josh, little old Stephen, who don't have much to give, but the smallness of the gospel faithfully sown into the life of another, you, you be, a, you be faithful to trust a great and glorious God to do great and glorious things through humble, small, faithful servants. Jesus is clear in these parables that God reveals and grows his kingdom by his power and in his wisdom.
Do we believe this? And are we living this out in faith? Are we eagerly giving attention to God's Word so that we might hear it clearly? Are we trusting the divine power of the gospel to bear the fruit that God intends and promises that it will? Have we treasured small gospel beginnings, knowing that God loves to get glory by, being, by bringing great gospel results from the humblest of starts? The Word of God will do the work of God among the people of God. You can believe it. We need only strive to hear it well, to trust His power, and call the world to find shelter in the shade of His kingdom. As we close in prayer in just a moment, I'll give one small invitation to you who may not know Jesus yet today. If God is speaking to you by His Spirit, through His Word, calling you to faith in Jesus today, if you came in here not believing and you find yourself here now 45 or hour and 45, hour and 15 minutes later, probably feels longer than that, now believing, something's changed in you, make time today after we close in worship. Come find me and let me know what God is doing in your heart, in your life today. Grab another member or family member that you may have come with, a friend that you may have come with this morning, and let them know something's happening in me. I think this word that your pastor's talking about is doing something in my heart, and I'm not sure about it. Can you help me? Reach out in boldness and ask a fellow believer or ask a, a Christian here in this room to help you understand what it is that God's doing and how you might have confidence of your salvation by faith in Jesus. God reveals and grows his kingdom by his power and his wisdom, and we will be all the more glad as he does. Let's only be faithful servants to sow it regularly and be ready to reap a harvest. Let's pray together.